welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists, Drs. Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Lauschus, and we're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. Note, the discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. And now, on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Accelerators Podcast with Simil Parikh, one of the hosts uh, from Lake Huron Medical Center, and I'm with my co-host, Dr. Matt Spraker. Yep, this is Matt Spraker coming from Denver, Colorado, radiation oncologist there. I'm very happy to be on the show today. We have a really cool episode today. Uh, If you've been reading the JCO over the last few months, uh, you might have come across some very uh, interesting narrative oncology from our guest, Dr. Matt Farrell, who's a resident at UCLA in radiation oncology. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Very kind of you. So where are you from? I grew up in Sacramento. I spent the first 18 years of my life there. Uh, I like it more than maybe most people like it, and certainly a lot more than my wife likes it. Uh, But yeah, that's where I grew up. Oh, and so you do, you do, you have recently written about your family and we're going to talk about that, but could you tell me a little bit about your family and where they're at? Sure. Uh, my parents still live in Sacramento. Uh, my sister, older sister is a veterinarian. She lives at uh, Davis and works at UC Davis there. Uh, I went to college at Stanford in California, and then I went up to Oregon uh, to do a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing and Fiction Writing at the University of Oregon, and then did med school up in Portland uh, at OHSU or Oregon Health and Science University before coming to UCLA. Well, that's an interesting track. So what what stemmed uh, going into the master's course? I was a film major and a creative writing minor. Um, one of the story will. I think talk about today about my first cousin once removed, John, he was trying to be an actor or he was an actor in LA and he helped inspire my early love of movies, of writing, of the arts. And I pursued that in college and really wanted to learn more about it, become a better writer. So I applied to MFA programs and got into Oregon, which was a great one and and learned a lot. And I didn't really know much about MFA programs. This one was fortunately uh, fully funded. An MFA program or an arts degree is the the type of program that maybe your parents don't necessarily want you to go to because yeah. there's not a clear job trajectory for it. Um, but this one was great. It's two years long uh, to get the funding. We also teach creative writing for two years while we're there oh. as we learn about writing. So we kind of learn about it from these brilliant writers and pass what we learn on to undergraduate students along the way. That's, that's really cool. I, I can't, you know, I'll tell you I, once in a while, I'll be like Googling this kind of stuff and to see if there's any workshops or potential things that I could get to. I also have a love of reading and writing and um, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, it's kind of fallen off, but, um, but you've kind of inspired me with your stories recently. So um, yeah. Have you done any formal training or like workshops or anything since graduating now that you're in medicine, like as a full-time kind of physician? Sure. I know that I I continue to keep in touch with the writers that I uh, was in the University of Oregon program with, uh, and that's been great. Informal kind of workshops, sending work back and forth. Uh, beyond that, at my med school, OHSU, 
there was a narrative medicine curriculum that was awesome where uh, the students there were encouraged to write about their experiences. And I participated in the curriculum there um, as a medical student leader of those sessions. And then here at UCLA, we're getting started up a an elective for fourth year medical students at UCLA, where we'll be doing a creative writing narrative medicine workshop. I'm doing that with a faculty member here uh, in the Radonc department, uh, Dr. Pooja Venkat, who leads the equity, diversity, and inclusion curriculum in our department. And so I'm really excited to work together with her to to teach a class about that. That's That's awesome. awesome. That is amazing. So uh, your most recent story, I loved it. I really loved it. It's beautiful. It's about family. It's about medicine. It's about hope. Uh, it's about reconciliation. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a short story, but it's really moving. Um, I had my wife read it this morning too, and she loved it. And she said, man, that guy can write. And uh, I was jealous about that. <laughs> but um can you can you read a can you read a paragraph or two for the sure audience? yeah thanks for saying that that's very kind of you it, it was a story that meant a lot to me personally so uh it was exciting to be able to share it and also fun and meaningful for my family uh this is about my first cousin once removed john uh he is my father's cousin and they were very close So John was about 15 years older than me and about 15 years younger than my father and was like a younger brother to my father and an older brother to me. This story takes place in the mid-1990s in Los Angeles, specifically West Hollywood. John was an actor um, there, and I just really looked up to him. He was so cool, so outgoing, confident. Uh, strong, um, and he, as a scrawny, small, shy kid at the time, I just really looked up to him, and he seemed to treat me as an equal, which just made me feel so uh, good about myself. Um, he also inspired, again, my love of movies. So this the passage that I'm going to read um, is about when he got sick. He got, he was gay. Uh, And he got HIV and it progressed to AIDS and he died of it just before kind of the revolution in treatment that was heart or highly active antiretroviral therapy. And it just is saddens me that if this had happened a year or so later that he'd gotten sick, he might have led a full life. And whenever I see these, like in lectures about medicine, about the advances we make in care, where there's a timeline, where there are landmark advances along that timeline at specific dates. Uh, I think about the people who were there in the days or months before those landmark advances, and, and John was one of those people who didn't get to benefit from that treatment. So this scene takes place in his West Hollywood small apartment. All of his family from New York is there. Um, my father and I are there along with uh, John's partner, uh, Kevin, and some of his friends. And John is unconscious at this point. He's never to wake again. He's not going to recover. He's on hospice. And 
but he's not quite dying. He's not fully letting go. Uh, and it's days where he's just hanging on in this unconscious state. And so we bring in the hospice nurse and she tells us that it, it can be really important to talk to your loved one, even if they're unconscious, give them permission to let go, uh, say that you love them, allow them to pass on. And so that's what we did one by one. We went into his room uh, and said our goodbyes and said, it's okay to go. And my grandfather was there for this whole discussion. Uh, it, it seemed like he was on the same page, but it turns out he wasn't. So here's the passage. By way of introduction, Grandpa Joe, my father's father, was raised in the Bronx by a stern mother and career soldier father. He was a businessman by profession and by religion. He rose in the ranks of multiple companies, eventually becoming the president of Hires Root Beer, a company that expanded during his tenure but was eventually bought by Orange Crush, which in turn crushed Hires Root Beer and made a lifelong enemy of my grandfather. <laughs> In my family, we do not drink Orange Crush. Grandpa Joe never surrendered without a fight. Accompanied by my father and me, Grandpa Joe marched up to John's bed and bent down beside him. You can fight this, he said, shaking his fist. I've had illnesses all my life and I came out on the other side. Did I let prostate cancer beat me? Hell no. Wait, dad, my father said. Wrong plan. <laughs> what? Grandpa Joe said. We had a whole conversation about this. When? Just now with the hospice nurse. We need to let go, allow John to pass on. That's not what I heard. That's becoming clear to me. <laughs> My father reviewed the plan slowly, but no matter how well you explain yourself, sometimes people hear only what they're capable of hearing. Grandpa Joe couldn't surrender. He argued and fumed, eventually stormed out. So my father said goodbye for him. That night, John died. I doubt the timing of his death was related to our collective send-off, but it sure felt like it was, and that will do. Powerful, man. Thank you. So we, we talked a little bit before we started. Um, uh, you, you said back, you're not religious by background, but when I, when I read this story, I feel like John is almost a religious character or symbolizes something greater than us and did did you did you keep that in mind was that something you were thinking about as the central premise of the story or what there's a line that mentions uh los angeles as our promised land and the, our shepherd was my father's cousin john and you said yeah no it wasn't biblical or anything like that but there there seems to be a connection to me sure and i know john uh grew up very religious and his family from New York uh, was very religious and he uh, ended up having a uh, Catholic memorial service in a church. And that, that part of himself meant a lot to him. And I do feel like as he crossed that threshold and brought these very disparate pieces of his family, friends and relationships together, to me, it felt like a religious experience in that small cramped West Hollywood apartment. Uh, the way that these different groups of people who were completely at odds about how to help care for John, how to um, take care of his body after he died, 
the love that he kind of emanated uh, allowed those groups to come together. And, and that felt um, spiritual to me. And also just his love and his passion uh, for the arts, for Los Angeles, for acting, for spreading joy and love uh, communicated themselves to my father and me in a very kind of spiritual way. And so LA with John at the center of it did feel like the promised land for me. I like that. <clears throat> so, you know, the central character, John, your dad's cousin was an actor slash waiter in the nineties in LA. Uh, very handsome. It seems like you're foreshadowing. Was that intentional? Yeah, I think first of all, that, that is true, but also what I was, what was, just so devastating about it is that he, as a person, uh, inside and out, represented the peak to me of health and vibrancy and energy. And the fact that a disease can take someone from that so quickly over the course of a year uh, to someone who's weakened, um, then unconscious, is just incredibly sad. And so, yeah, I was kind of trying to, to paint the striking contrast over the course of a year that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we, I'm older than you and I, I even remember, you know, I remember I was a teenager in the early nineties pre-heart and it was just, you'd see it on TV, perfectly yeah. healthy people just going down so quickly and so, and you're right. You spoke about it before. So close. They were so, so many of them were so close to being able to turn this into a chronic disease. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen, sorry to cut in. I just wanted to ask if you've seen the, did you watch the virtual visiting professor network presentation? This was during COVID. I don't know if you guys remember this, but I think it came out of, uh, I think it's, it's Brian Kavanaugh's thing, right? He started this like kind of YouTube lecture series and one of them one of the early ones was actually some uh and i have to apologize i can't remember who exactly it was but we can link to this but they presented on their experiences basically working the wards when hiv was discovered and then kind of broke in san francisco and and there was there was sort of you know a lot of a lot of patients and they basically talked about their experiences moving to wearing gloves when they were interacting with patients and things like that sure I don't know if either of you saw that, but I thought it was the best one of all of those presentations that they had, other than Simmel's one that created this podcast. <laughs> but but I thought it was I don't did you guys see that at all or I didn't see it actually. I didn't yeah. see it. We we should link to it so that people can see it because I think it's worth watching. And yeah. as I don't know, you're probably the same, Matt, where I am. I guess young or early enough in medicine that I never saw that. So by the time I like got to medical school and was working with patients, heart was, you know, universally available in the United States and, or for the most part. And I never really saw patients like that. So it was really an interesting thing. And I think that your, um, you know, your, your essay kind of brought that up again for me because um, that has always been something that's been, you know, just a, a mental model. I've never seen, experienced it in, in real life. And so it just, it, I think it's always a little um, jarring for me to kind of read about that because it's just something that's sure. distant or, or not, you know, not, not as real to me because I never saw it. Yeah. I, I know that I saw one case of advanced AIDS when I was in medical school and it was a, a rarity and the infectious disease specialist spoke about it as a rarity these days. 
Uh, so yeah, it's, it's great that it's become so rare to get to that state. And it's incredible to think about how that was so common. So, you know, not very long ago. Yeah. So to, to, to continue on with this, you know, like AIDS in this era had a multi-year of period, multi-year period where there was no cure. Um, and you know, when we, when, early COVID was happening, there was no cure, right? Like the death rate was unimaginably high early on, especially with the elderly. We very quickly had effective treatments and then the vaccine, and it's still, you know, fundamentally has changed America and the world. Um, AIDS must've done the same thing. I, I feel like it did. It was, it, it transformed the way we look at so many things. Um, but I, I would imagine pre heart and there was probably a, like this terrible helplessness in patients and healthcare workers um how do you think you know how do you think john and your family experienced that at that time because i i can't put myself there the idea that this disease which is so treatable now just 20 years you know 30 years ago was not yeah i, I think that's a good connection uh to covid for one thing when covid started here, I was an intern in internal medicine in the hospital, and my wife, who's a few years ahead of me in training, was a brand new first year attending, working as a hospitalist. We were both in Portland, and that feeling of the unknown, of not knowing what worked to prevent spread, of not knowing what worked to treat, uh, that we still experienced that very viscerally. And it was also interesting that we lived in an apartment complex where we could see huge apartment complex buildings across the way. And we experienced um, every night at 7 p.m. The, our neighbors getting out and banging pots um, kind of to celebrate the care that was being given. I, I don't think that same sort of experience happened with HIV, but I'm certainly not an expert in that. I know that um, John, without good medical options, tried to look anywhere to get a cure, to avoid death. He certainly did not want to die. And so he traveled around. He spoke to visionary healers. He tried a lot of homeopathic remedies um, that were uncomfortable to do. He had concoctions that he drank that were very bitter to swallow. Uh, and each time it seemed maybe like as his disease waxed and waned, it seemed like maybe some of these were working and he would get just glimpses of pure hope that he had cured himself, um, but he hadn't. And my dad talked about how he didn't know what to do when John was taking these treatments that my father viewed as maybe not helpful, maybe even harmful, where you realize that if you tell your loved one to stop doing that, you are maybe taking away a source of harm, but you're also taking away a source of hope. So he never ended up kind of facing that uh, with, with John. So uh, John's grandfather reminds me a lot of the vets we see are men of a certain generation. And it's clear he's showing love in the way he knows how to, it makes me think of, you know, the words you use when he's talking, it makes me think of the, the whole battle 
battlefield mentality of cancer care that's kind of going away. And in your experience, have you noticed a change in the language? Um, and was that was that like that's what he really said? But you know, did, was was that in your mind this idea of how like it's a battle and you got to give it your all, and you know, the idea of winning and losing um, when we know that it's not that. Yeah. Again, I'm. I don't have. I'm early in my training and career, and um, I'm not sure I can speak to the overall trends. But I definitely think there's an awareness among doctors about being careful with language, and that doesn't mean always avoiding uh, military metaphors and battle metaphors. But I think just being carefully aware of the effect that has on folks. But it's still so pervasive in society like every obituary you read about someone who died with cancer um, seems to have that phrase they died after their battle with cancer uh, so i'm not sure it's gone away but i i do appreciate the awareness of it uh, i know that i've heard many times already that my family member is a fighter uh, i'm a fighter they're yeah. a fighter uh, we can fight this we can beat this yes and it's when that really isn't an option, when we come to the end of life and we're trying to help facilitate a, an acceptance of that, it's easy, I think, for us to want that, but it's so hard for people to accept, especially when they've faced all of life as, as a fighter resisting things. And as I try to have goals of care discussions now, um, even when I, I'm, I'm no expert in them, <laughs> certainly, but even when I think they go really well and I've communicated something uh, quite effectively, I can only know what I've said, what I've put out there. I can't know what's being received. And so when someone comes back completely out of sync with what I think I've communicated, I'm reminded fondly of Grandpa Joe. And it just reminds me that if people express their love they in different ways and i try not to be frustrated with that try to just be understanding of of people's different paces in in coming to terms with what are really difficult situations right right someone with a different approach is not the enemy necessarily it's just a different way of expression during a very challenging time yeah um Obviously, we've spoiled, you know, this is a spoiler show, so I'm, I'm not going to keep anything hidden. But the story's climax of what to do with John's remains, um, it's interesting to me. In 2023, there's no question. You, you, you'd ask, you know, the boyfriend or the, the husband what, what to do. And in this era, there was no way John was going to be married, for one. Sure. Um, just legally and culturally where we were in this country. And, and so this is a really, this is a very taut point. Like what's going to happen? How, how, how aggressive is his blood family going to be about a burial in, out East versus, versus the cremation in Maui, uh, which is what he wanted and what, what his um, spouse wanted, essentially spouse. Um and so I love, I love the ending, you know, Hank agreeing was a really great compromise. And I wonder, like you, you said, you haven't 
you know, recently been in touch with Hank, but I'm, I, I, you know, I kind of trying to think and be in that time and how courageous that was from him as well to agree to that because of stigma and because of what people will say and what the community will think, uh, especially coming from a enclave in, in, in New York city like that. Any thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. I think it was a remarkable decision by Hank, uh, because not only for himself, uh, and his own understanding, but he had a whole set of family members behind him, including grandpa Joe, who was a forceful figure uh, yeah. to say the least, uh, along with his wife, along with John's three sisters, along with their husbands, they all were behind him expecting Hank to kind of speak up for them about bringing John's body back for a traditional burial in New York. And for him to be able to, after his son has just died, for him to be able to take in what his son's partner, Kevin, who he only met just a few days ago, for him to be able to take in what Kevin was saying about John's true wishes to be cremated um, was pretty remarkable. And I still think about it as a brave choice. And so uh, I am really grateful to Kevin that he knew what John's wishes were and that he was able to communicate them in such an empathetic and kind way. And I'm, I'm grateful that Hank listened. Yeah. Well, again, beautiful story. And um, please do read it, share it with your family and friends. It's wonderful. I want to move over to your writing in general for you. Uh, we, we talk a lot about wellness and burnout and um, all the work that we have to do versus what we like to do. Uh, what does writing do for your mental health? Sure. It, first of all, it's fun for me. I enjoy it. I enjoy reading. I listen to a lot of audiobooks living in LA. I listen to a lot of fiction, things having nothing to do with medicine, along with things having to do with medicine. So it's just fun. It's a great escape for me. And that in and of itself helps my mental health. Then when it comes to writing about medicine, it helps me kind of organize and process my own experiences. And I have learned a lot from reading other people's work about medicine and always there's a lot of pain, loss, uh, trauma, just being in medicine. And those things are difficult to think about, let alone write them down, let alone share them. So when other people share their stories about medicine that, that are personal and involve pain, uh, it's really encouraging to me and makes me feel braver about uh, sharing my own perspective and encouraging other people to share theirs. So it, it's fun and rewarding for me. Have you read Cutting for Stone? You know, I haven't. It's been at the top of my list for so long. It was one of my grandmother's favorite books, and it's on my bookshelf right over there. I just haven't gotten to it yet. I I uh, suggest you start start soon. It's a lovely book. Um, Great. Dr. Ragese is an excellent physician and an excellent writer as well. I think you'll really enjoy it. How do you think you'll bring this to your practice in the future? Uh, Sure. I just plan to keep writing for one uh, because I like it, but I also do want to formally do it in terms of uh, being involved in education with this elective that 
I am, will be teaching with Dr. Venkat. Wow. One, one of our goals uh, to teach fourth-year medical students uh, is not only about the practice of writing and how best to communicate your thoughts and experiences, but to help encourage people to gain confidence in their voices, uh, to encourage diverse perspectives, to get those diverse perspectives out into the world so that we can all experience them. There are a lot of venues. Um, first of all, you can write for yourself, uh, and that in and of itself, I think, is helpful. But if you feel like sharing, there are now a lot of venues to do that, like in JCO. Uh, but a lot of journals have sections dedicated to narrative pieces. JAMA with a piece of my mind, New England Journal with perspective, practical radiation oncology with narrative oncology. Then there are a whole set of journals dedicated to narrative medicine. And then, of course, many literary journals. And so if you feel like um, sharing, there, there are venues out there and I love reading them. Do you write fiction? I mostly write fiction. Um, I mostly write short stories. Uh, that's what I studied in the Masters of Fine Arts program uh, for two years. That's what I'm most experienced in writing and reading. Uh, just talking about what that master's program was like, it was a complete switch from my undergraduate experience in creative writing classes, uh, where a, a workshop is the heart of creative writing. That's a small group where you share your work and critique it together. In undergraduate, that was a very supportive um, environment where people just essentially complimented each other saying we were all doing a great job and it was wonderful. And I think that was very appropriate uh, in graduate school. It was a rude awakening with the outlandishly insulting criticism that we would receive uh, about our writing. I remember one of my early stories um, got some feedback from one of the professors he tended to write 10 or 12 pages of typed feedback about each of our <laughs> stories. And the first page of the first time he critiqued my work went like this. Your story reminds me of what is said to be Ronald Reagan's favorite joke. It is about a young boy who is just a pathological optimist. He's just way too chipper, uh, way too optimistic. And his father's worried about him because of it. So he takes him into a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist, to test this young boy's optimism, um, puts him in a room with a pile of horse manure. And the boy's face lights up with glee. He dives headfirst into the horse manure and starts digging around. The psychiatrist is shocked and says, what are you doing? And the young boy says, with all this manure around, there must be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and the professor went on to describe that that was what it was like reading my story. He was trying to be an optimist, but as he read through my story, which had taken the form of a mountain of horse manure, he was digging around, trying to find the meaning, the purpose, kind of the pony, so to speak but all he found was more manure. And so that's what I read as the first page of my feedback. And I, I almost couldn't be insulted because his insult was so entertaining for one thing, <laughs> but also I, I don't ascribe to that method of feedback. I think we can help each other grow and learn in a supportive, friendly, understanding way, knowing that we were, we've all, been learners and need to learn. But what that struck me 
about the type of feedback we received in that program, along with my experiences in medicine so far, is that we often face harsh criticism, uh, disappointing rejection. And I've faced endless rejection as a writer uh, and a lot of criticism too um, in medicine, just like trying to learn how to be a good doctor is a hard thing to do. And there are a lot of missteps and sending out scientific journals, writing grant proposals, um, faced with disappointing rejection. And it just reminds me that uh, we're all in this together. I think we can support each other along the way. And I think when people share their stories of medicine, it helps remind me that I, because rejection can feel isolating. Like you're the only one going through it as other people are achieving success. So when I hear other people's stories and I try to share my own, um, it's just encouraging that that we've all made it through it. And I, I hope that we can help each other through what's really hard. Will you, will you have room for a uh, community read on from the Midwest to join your seminar? <laughs> sure. Yes. Uh, we'd love That's to have you. A friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm my friend. So. <laughs> I, so, I understood that. We, we talked a little bit, uh, a little bit about this before. I, I have to, I, I put my kids to bed with my wife and it's always daddy tell me a story make up a story and I mean I just I run out of ideas like how many unicorn stories with a castle can you come up with so I've started messing around with the chat GPT and I tell you this is not going to win Pulitzers but it makes pretty competent stories Um, and any ideas on or thoughts on what what you think the future holds for fiction and nonfiction with, uh, with these language learning models? Sure. I am, uh, not even very good at interpreting the present. So I'm even worse at predicting the future, but, (laughs) um, I think it's very interesting. I don't have that much experience with chat GPT myself. I was, uh, in the last week I've been kind of toying around with it. I recently read an incredible a collection of short stories called Thrillville USA by Taylor Cook Cook. Um, his last name is spelled K-O-E-K-K-O-E-K. Uh, this is a little bit of a shameless plug because he was one of my former students from Oregon. Wow. Um, and he was better than me then. And he continues to be far better than me now. Uh, but his collection of stories that just came out this month uh, is just flooring, stunning. Um And what I tried to do as a little experiment, I tried to put into a prompt into ChatGPT things that would try to recreate his short stories to see if it could anywhere come close to capturing the magic that he captured in his stories. And what was produced were very uh, strikingly coherent sentences (laughs) um, and scenarios but of course the magic wasn't there. Uh, and I'm I'm not saying that just to justify the fact yeah. that humans are better at art than, than AI. And it, a lot of progress I'm sure um, remains to be made with AI. But there, it was more, um, what was impressive was the coherence rather than the, the power or, or the personality. Yeah. So uh, Thrillville sounds awesome. What else are you reading right now, fiction-wise? I have a long flight to Japan next week and need to pick up some things. 
Yeah. Uh, I do like reading short stories. It's not the most common kind of or popular form. Another great short story writer who is one of the most popular out there uh, is George Saunders. Have you read anything by him? I don't think so. He uh, came out with a book recently and all of his collections of stories are really engaging, funny, uh, humanistic. He's very warm hearted. It's kind of, he blends um, sci-fi and surrealism uh, in a very engaging way. I suggest you check out any of his books. They're okay. awesome. I, I do. I do like short story collections. I, I, I enjoy that. So Gosh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I love this conversation. I love what you're doing. I really am excited about your future. And um, yeah, any any last thoughts? No, other than gratitude. I just really appreciate your having me on here. It's been uh, fun to talk with you. Uh, and I, since you mentioned wanting, uh, having taken a break from writing and maybe being inspired to get back into it, I highly encourage that. And uh, if you ever feel like sharing stuff or, or want some very kind, supportive feedback, uh, please <laughs> do send it my way. <laughs> I, I remember some feedback from my program director. Uh, you know, I was a pretty average resident at times, maybe not uh, average, but I, I got better. And I asked Dr. Barry, well, how do you think I'm doing? And he looked at me and he says, you can put two and two together and get four now. <laughs> you did it. Was, yeah, yeah. That was his, that was the, about the most positive feedback he came up with me at the time. So. <laughs> That's great. That's great All right. Well, have a great rest of the weekend, my friend. You too. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks.